Let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Chapter 1. It's a new year, 2015, so I've decided to go right back to the beginning and start again in Romans chapter 1. Sort of, kind of. I actually want to do three things uh, this morning, and I pray each of them in their own way will point us to Christ and Him crucified. First thing I want to do is indeed take you back and start in Romans chapter 1 and bring you up to Romans 6 and review where we've been and what we have seen in this epistle to make sure we do not lose sight of Paul's thought flow, to make sure we are clear on his teaching concerning the gospel in the first five chapters of Romans. Second thing I want to do is take you into Romans chapter 6, the first 10 verses. Just an introduction, a light introduction. And consider a few things Paul says there in particular, how those verses relate to what we have already witnessed, baptism. And then the third thing I want to do with you is lead you in the second ordinance this church practices. That, of course, being the Lord's Supper. And so in each, my goal is pretty straightforward. It points you to Christ and to Him crucified. Now, there should be a slide coming up behind me on this screen. And when you see it, there will be a verse at the top. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Turn there with me. Uh, Paul, in this verse, declares his... I guess what we can call main subject, main theme in this epistle. There he writes, for in it, in what? He tells us in the preceding verse, the gospel. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. And I have included it on this slide, a quotation out of the ancient book of Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. That is is Paul's theme. 16 chapters, lots of verses. He unpacks lots of information and doctrine. We can sum it all up in that single statement. The righteous shall live by faith. In the book, he approaches it from five angles, five different directions. There's what I have labeled them. The first, condemnation. The second, justification. The third, sanctification. The fourth, some of you are waiting anxiously for this, election. And the fifth, application. You throw the introduction on the front and the conclusion on the end, and there you have an outline of the epistle in its entirety as Paul unpacks that single statement, the righteous shall live by faith. Next slide, Ricky. Thank you. We've already considered the first section. It begins in chapter 1, verse 18, and goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. In these chapters, Paul leads us into a courtroom. Do you remember? Think months back, those of you who were here, we stood in a courtroom. And he makes it pretty clear that in this courtroom, there is a judge. The judge is God. He makes it clear that in this courtroom, there stands the accused. The accused is 
humanity. Humanity as divided in two groups. A division that goes all the way back to Genesis chapters 11 and 12. A division between Gentiles and Jews. There are two witnesses called. The first witness is what we call general revelation. That is, what God has revealed about himself in creation. The second witness is special revelation. That is, what God has revealed concerning himself in this book, the Bible. And so this court case unfolds. And what Paul does, he's the prosecuting attorney. He presents an accusation in the 18th verse. Look at it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Here's the accusation. Who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? They suppress, squash, what? The truth. You don't believe me? He calls two witnesses. He calls firstly, general revelation. This testimony begins in the 19th verse and continues to the 8th verse of chapter 3. He calls general revelation to bear witness against the Gentiles. To testify against those who do not have this book. To witness, testify against those who do not have the word of God. And general revelation bears testimony. And general revelation, that is creation, testifies to the fact that God has revealed himself in the created order. That his invisible attributes are clearly evident. But people willfully suppress the truth. They suppress what God has made abundantly clear in creation. Therefore, everyone, even those who have never even seen a Bible, they are without excuse. Why are they without excuse? Because by their unrighteousness, they have willfully suppressed the truth, which God himself has made clear to everyone, all people and all places at all times through creation. There's an objection. Hold on. I'm a good person. Paul says, no, you're not. And God is actually going to judge your secrets. He is going to judge our inner aspirations and dreams and desires. And on that basis, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl stands condemned before the judge God. Paul is finished with his first witness, general revelation. He calls now a second witness, special revelation, this book. To testify in particular to the Jews. Why? Because they possessed the oracles of God. And he demonstrates, you Jews, you, you, you think a lot of yourselves. And you think simply because you're a Jew, simply because you possess the oracles of God, simply because you have that elaborate religious system, you are better than the Gentiles. But in actual fact, here is your condition. Just as the Gentiles have willfully rejected what God has revealed himself through creation, so too you Jews have willfully rejected and suppressed what God makes evident in his oracles, in his scriptures, the very word of God. They object. Hang on a second. I am a religious person. To which Paul responds, I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less. God judges the inner man. God is interested in an inner circumcision of the heart. 
God looks favorably to those who receive and believe his revelation as held, held out, yes, through creation, but more importantly, through scripture. You have willfully suppressed it. He's finished with his second witness. General revelation takes his seat. Special revelation takes his seat. And then the judge speaks, giving himself the verdict. Look at it in chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. It's frightening. We heard that word earlier in our adult Sunday school class, horror. These verses are horrific. Look at what the judge declares beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, what is their problem? What is their condition? They are under sin. They are sinful in what they think. The rest of verse 10, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. They are sinful in what they want. Into verse 11, no one seeks for God. They are sinful in what they choose. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. They are sinful in what they say. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. They are sinful in terms of what they do. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And they are sinful when it comes to what they fear. The 18th verse, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Humanity stands on trial. General revelation and special revelation testify to this fact. They prove the accusation that everyone in every place at all times is guilty by their unrighteousness of suppressing the truth of God. And the sentence is passed in verses 19 through 20. It's summed up right at the end of the 19th verse. The whole world. The whole world is accountable to God. Oh, it's depressing, isn't it? It is horrific. There you have the condition of mankind. Man already stands condemned in the sight of God for willfully suppressing the knowledge, the truth of God because of man's own sinfulness. The next slide, Ricky. We moved on from that section, condemnation, into the second section. And here's cause for rejoicing. We've called it justification. And it begins, it picks right up in chapter 3, where we left off, verse 21. And it goes all the way through to the end of chapter 5. And what does Paul do here? The next slide will demonstrate for us. Here it is. Paul begins by making a declaration, still in the third chapter, beginning in verse 21. And here's what he declares, but precious truth, I've given you the bad news in the first three chapters. I've demonstrated that all humanity stands condemned in the sight of God, but, but here comes the good news. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested 
Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, that is the Old Testament scriptures, bear witness to it, what do they bear witness to? What is this righteousness of God that is now manifested? He tells us in the 22nd verse, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It is as if at the end of that deplorable court case, that trial, As humanity stands condemned, their mouths shut, no response, understanding their condemned state before God because they are under sin, the judge having given the verdict, the judge having passed the sentence now speaks, wait a minute, wait a minute, that is your condition before me as a judge, you are condemned, the sentence is passed, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to manifest my righteousness. I'm going to manifest my righteousness in justifying sinners. And here is how this is going to work. I am going to change my verdict from guilty to innocent. And I am going to change the sentence from death to life. And I am going to do it for one reason, one reason alone. I'm going to do it by virtue of one means One means alone, and here it is. It will be by grace through faith in Christ. It will be by grace. In other words, I will change the verdict, guilty to innocent. I will change the sentence, death to life. It will be by grace, meaning this, and please understand it. It will be my gift to you. And here's what you're going to do. You are simply going to receive it. It will be through faith. And here's how I can do this in Christ. Why? Because I have displayed my son publicly as a propitiation by his blood. The condemnation, which was yours, I meet it out upon him. When he hung upon Calvary's cross, all that sinfulness of which you are guilty I imputed it to him. I reckoned it to him. I counted it to him. And I punished him accordingly. Therefore, all who believe in him, all who turn to him, all who rest in him, all who become united with him through faith, I am prepared to change the verdict. I am prepared to change the sentence. And I am prepared to accept that man, that woman, as righteous in my sight, not because of a righteousness of their own, but because of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Paul declares in those verses. I need to stop there, don't I? Do you get that, my friend? I mean, really, each of us here this day, do you get that? Do you understand the full extent, depth, breadth, height of the gospel? Do you understand the precariousness of your standing before a holy God? God, you're already condemned in his sight. The verdict has been given. The sentence has been rendered. All you're waiting for is the execution of the sentence. It's called hell. But God, as a manifestation of his glorious grace, is prepared to change it all. He's prepared to alter it all for all who believe it is by grace through faith in Christ. But Paul must do something secondly in this section. He needs to defend this doctrine. 
And that brings us into the fourth chapter. Why does he need to defend it? Because he knows the Jews are going to choke on it. And so back when we were looking at the fourth chapter, we used our sanctified imagination. And we imagined the Apostle Paul walking out of that courtroom. And we kind of imagined him descending the steps in front of the courtroom. And there were gathered were a group of Jews waiting for him. Paul, come here. We want to have a word with you. Paul, we understand the, the sentence condemnation. We understand what you're saying now about justification through faith, by grace through faith in Christ. Okay, it looks good on paper, Paul, but here's, here's our problem. Here's our issue. It can't be true. And here's why it can't be true. It isn't what our forefathers believe. Nor is it what our scriptures teach. Paul nearly chokes on it, doesn't he? And he replies, what are you talking about? And in the fourth chapter, what does he do? He takes them to the greatest of their fathers, Abraham. And he takes them to the greatest of their kings, David. And he appeals to a scripture, Genesis in the case of Abraham, Psalms in the case of David. And he demonstrates what? Nothing could be further from the truth than what you just said. Oh, my friends, my fellow countrymen, please understand this. This is exactly what they believe. This is exactly how God justified Abraham. It was by grace through faith in Christ. This is precisely how he saved David. It was by grace through faith in Christ. This is exactly what you, your scriptures teach. And essentially what he is saying to them is, oh, my friends, please understand this isn't new. I am, I am simply confirming and proclaiming that which is old, that which was declared way back in Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live how? Only one way, by faith. How can a man that is sinful stand righteous in the sight of God? There is only one way. It is through faith. Faith in a redeemer. Faith in a savior. And so in the fourth chapter, he levies his defense of the doctrine of justification. And then when he comes to the fifth chapter, he celebrates the doctrine of justification. And he declares in that first verse, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. Oh, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has brought together two warring parties. Christ has reconciled, brought together two parties that were formerly at enmity, God and us. Christ has accomplished this through his shed blood at Calvary's cross. And what does Paul go on to say in those verses? He says, we rejoice. We exult. Three reasons. The first, at the end of verse two, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Second, into verse three, oh, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. More than that, it brings us into the 11th verse. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so Paul declares it, he defends it, and he celebrates it. And then in the fifth chapter, beginning in verse 12, through to verse 21, he brings it all to a head. He summarizes everything he has said to this point in the epistle. He summarizes everything he has said concerning our condemnation. 
and he summarizes everything he has said concerning our justification in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in these great verses, really the pinnacle of the entire epistle, a passage which is pivotal to understand when it comes to grasping the message of the scriptures, in these verses, Paul describes two men. Who are they? Adam, back in the Garden of Eden, and the last Adam, Christ Jesus. There are two men. And Paul says in these verses that there are also two humanities. In other words, each of these men stands at the head of a humanity. And so Adam stands at the head of the old humanity. The old humanity consists simply of all of his physical descendants. Everyone who has ever lived is one with that head, that representative, Adam. And you see, the second humanity, the new humanity, are all those who are one with Christ through faith. And so you see, the old humanity consists of the physical descendants of Adam. The new humanity consists of those who have been born again. And they are now the spiritual descendants of Christ. And just as there are two men, two humanities, Paul speaks in these verses of two actions. Only two. The first action was Adam's disobedience. And he said, please understand that when Adam, that man who is the head of all humanity, all his physical descendants, all his physical posterity, when Adam disobeyed in the garden, his disobedience was counted as their disobedience. His guilt was counted as the guilt of all his descendants. His condemnation became the condemnation of all his descendants. Similarly, likewise, the Lord Jesus, one action, he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He became submissive here on earth. He obeyed even to the point of death. And so we have Adam's one act of disobedience. We have Christ's one act of obedience, one act of righteousness, which he performs on behalf of all those who are one with him. And so two men, Adam way over there, Christ right here. Two humanities, all of Adam's physical descendants and all of Christ's spiritual descendants. Two actions, Adam's disobedience and Christ's obedience. Two results. That Adam, when he disobeyed, the result was what? Condemnation and death for that old humanity, all who are united with him. The result of Christ, obedience. That when he obeyed, culminating in his death upon Calvary's cross, the result was justification and life for all who are one with him. It points to what? To covenant. That back in the garden, God entered into a covenant of works with Adam. Adam, here's what you must do. You must obey. And he made that covenant with Adam as a public figure, the head, the representative of all humanity. Therefore, Adam's sin is our sin. Adam's disobedience is our disobedience. Adam's guilt is our guilt. His condemnation is our condemnation. His death is our death. Oh, but praise God, there is a covenant of grace. That all who are united with Christ, Christ took hold of me by the Holy Spirit. I took hold of him by faith. Therefore, what Christ did as a public person, Christ counts it as if I did it. Oh, praise God. That means Christ, God counts Christ's death as if it were my death. 
That Christ bore the penalty for my sin upon Calvary's cross, and he did it as a substitute for me. I am one with him, therefore his death is my death. The penalty is gone and judgment is removed. Oh, and that perfect life he lived, because I am one with him, that life is now mine. His obedience is now mine. His righteousness is now mine. And I stand justified in the sight of God. That is the second section. Next slide, Ricky. The second section in Paul's epistle to the Romans. Again, the key thought. The righteous shall live by faith. Why is that necessary? Why does it have to be that way? Because we are all condemned. What does it mean the righteous shall live by faith? That brings us into the second section where Paul celebrates, defends, and explains the doctrine of justification. And it brings us now to where? The third section, sanctification, beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, going all the way through to chapter 8. Ricky, you can take those slides away. I don't have anymore. We turn now to Romans chapter 6, and as we ease into it, I want to paint a picture for you. At one point, we were inside a courtroom. Subsequently, we emerged from the courtroom, and we stood with the Apostle Paul on the steps as he engaged in that running battle with the Jews. It's all done. The debate is over. Paul has silenced his critics. He has expounded in beautiful terms the doctrine of justification. He now shuffles away, hurries on his way. He left his mule parked at a meter. And so off the apostle Paul goes with scrolls of the ancient scriptures in hand as he makes his way now to his mule down the street. And as he's shuffling along, he sees his mule parked there at the end of the road. He notices someone walking straight for him. And he knows this man is making a beeline for him because his eyes are just fixed, riveted on the Apostle Paul. And as the man gets close, he began shaking his, his finger at Paul. And it takes him a little moment, a few moments to compose himself. And finally, the words come out, Paul, I heard everything. I sat through it all. I understand it. I get it. I, 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 but, but I'm a little perplexed. I'm a little troubled by this notion of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As a matter of fact, I'm very troubled with this idea that God saves us apart from works. That is troublesome, Paul. That is worrisome. What you are saying, that my works do not enter into it, that I contribute nothing to it. Therefore, I deduce, Paul, that what I do does not matter. Paul, do you not understand the can of worms this is going to open? Paul, I see, oh, the law of unintended consequences, Paul. I see it. Can you not see it? This is going to lead to moral laxity. This is going to make people think, well, I believe in Jesus. Now I can live however I please, right? Paul is about to respond. He doesn't even get the first word out of his mouth, but he hears someone shout, Paul, from behind him. There's another man crossing the street. This man has a woman hanging from his arm who isn't his wife. His nose is bright red and his eyes are glazed over and he's staggering because he spent the night drinking in the pub. Paul, buddy, heard what you said about justification. Loving it. Amazing grace. Sing with me, Paul. Oh, this is wonderful. All I have to do is believe. 
as he slurs his speech. All I had to do was say a prayer. I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus died for me. Oh, I believe my works have nothing to do with it. I believe my works don't matter. I believe it doesn't matter what I do. And so eat, drink, and be merry. Paul catches a glimpse of the first man out of the corner of his eye. And that first man doesn't say anything. But his eyebrows are raised as if to say what? You see, Paul? This is exactly what I'm talking about. That is dangerous teaching, Paul, because this is where it is going to lead. How does Paul respond? Chapter 6, the first 10 verses. What shall we say then? Right? Given the doctrine of justification... That is not about us. It's all about Christ. All we do is believe. All I do is receive it. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives too. God. Now notice briefly, we're just going to touch on a few thoughts in here to answer that dilemma. Answer that dilemma. First thing I want you to notice is the question. First verse. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? It is the question posed by that man who confronts the apostle Paul, and we're using our imagination, on the street. Paul, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works. It doesn't matter what I do. Paul, here's where it's going to end up. Is this what we are to conclude? That we can continue in sin and the result will be, well, God's grace will simply abound. I can live however I please and God is going to forgive me. That seems to be the inference of your doctrine of justification. That is the question. Now look at the answer. Second verse, by no means. I think it's the authorized version says what? God forbid. I like that. It's better. God forbid, what horror, what sheer and utter nonsense. I can't believe, says the Apostle Paul, a thing like that just came out of your mouth. By no means. Here's his answer. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? The scenario you just presented is, says Paul, de facto, an impossibility. It's an impossibility. He does a third thing to explain this. He makes an appeal, beginning in the third verse. Do you not know? He makes an appeal. He appeals to their knowledge. Do you not know what? 
that all of us, here we go, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Oh, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You have the question, you have the answer, you have the appeal. He appeals to what? Baptism. Now, what baptism does he have in mind? He is using baptism in the sense of what? That when I, a sinner, the Holy Spirit granted me illumination and took hold of me, brought conviction of sin, I believed in Jesus Christ. At that moment, I became united with him. At that moment, I was, spiritually speaking, baptized into Christ. Baptized into what? What am I united to Christ in? I am now united to him in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. It is a spiritual baptism, the symbol of which we have all witnessed. But a few moments ago, as those three, Sean and Jonathan and Hannah, entered into the waters and they emerged from the waters, what were they declaring? They were testifying to an internal reality. Their baptism into physical water was an external declaration of an internal reality that at some point in the past, they had been baptized into Christ. That is, they'd been made one with Christ through faith, whereby Christ's death was now their death. And Christ's life was now their life. Do you understand now Paul's answer? How can we who have died to sin, how can we who are united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection continue and say, I've never heard anything so absurd in my life? That's Paul's response. You think this is where the doctrine of justification brings you? Oh, my friend, you have just demonstrated for me, you do not understand the first thing about the doctrine of justification. You do not understand what it means to be one with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Paul does a fourth thing. He draws out the obvious implications. The first is this in verses 6 and 7. We are united to Christ in his death. Sixth verse. We know that our old self, the old man, what's that? Everything he said in the fifth chapter. Those verses. Everything we are in Adam. The guilt. The condemnation. The sin, the shame, that old man, it's all been what? It has been crucified with Christ. It's been judged. It's been condemned in order that what? The body of sin. What's that? That's the flesh. That's our sinful human nature. That's our propensity, our inclination to evil, all under sin. Sinful in what we think, what we say, what we do, what we feel, what we want, what we desire. And so the old self was judged, condemned, crucified with Christ in order that that body of sin might be brought to nothing. What is the result? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, there's a new inclination within me now. I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, my sinful flesh. But I am also fully aware now that the Spirit of God dwells within. And the Spirit of God has broken that dominion of sin. The Spirit of God has broken that power of sin. Its final expulsion is awaiting glorification. And I still struggle with sin. I still still sin. At times, I even still struggle with habitual sin. But the point is this. I am no longer under sin's dominion. 
Because the Spirit of God has taken up residence. That is the first implication. We are united to Christ in his death. Second implication is this. We are united to Christ in his resurrection. Verses 8 through 10. That we have died, verse 8. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Yes, there is a coming resurrection. A resurrection of the body. Yes, when our resurrected bodies will be reunited with our glorified souls and we'll be glorified for all eternity. But previewing all of that is a spiritual resurrection at the moment of the new birth. The moment we are made one with Christ, united to him in his death, united to him in his life, whereby, as says the Apostle Paul, it is no longer I who live. But it is Christ who lives in me. I read a beautiful illustration of this recently. Listen to these words. In 2011, in Iowa, an older couple, 94, the husband, 90, the wife, were in a car accident. They were taken to hospital together and were lying side by side as the husband passed away. As his heart stopped, he became cold and lifeless. Nevertheless, his heart monitor continued to show a heartbeat. Why? Because he was still holding his wife's hand. The monitor showed her life through him. Now please hear this. In the same way, Christian, you are dead. You are dead. You died when you became one with Christ. It is now the life of Christ coursing through you. If this is true, then whose identity do you possess? You are one with Christ. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? God Forbid. What nonsense. You do not understand who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. United to him in his death. United to him in his life as testified by the waters of baptism. Five questions quickly. Friend, do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know what it means to be united to him? Union with Christ is the difference between everything and nothing. It is the difference between feast and famine, between fullness and emptiness. The difference between a refreshing oasis and a crippling desert. Difference between heaven and hell. The difference between an eternity of joy and pleasure and an eternity of pain and sorrow. Do you not know who you are in Christ? Second question. Do you not know the meaning of your baptism? What those three just testified for us publicly. The title for today's sermon. Baptism is what? It's a death certificate. That's, what's being hand, that's what was handed to you when you entered into the waters of baptism. That was, was written out and handed to you. It was your death certificate. Testifying to the fact that you died, that old man in Christ Jesus. You are now united with Christ in the likeness of his death. You are now united with Christ in the likeness of his life. Third question is this. Do you not know God's plan for you? Do you not know 
God's plan for you. God's plan is to forgive you and to change you. God's plan is to pardon you and to cleanse you. God's plan is to justify you and to sanctify you. Fourth question is this. Do you not know that sanctification is as beautiful as justification? Uh, Many today don't believe that. Just tell me about justification. Sanctification is something they'd rather remain in the attic and you didn't have to talk about or ever see or ever address. Oh, my friends, sanctification is as beautiful as justification. At Calvary's cross, Christ deals with the penalty of our sin and the power of our sin. And when we become one with Christ through faith, we become one with him in his death, one with him in his life, and the penalty of our sin is paid in full, and the power of our sin is broken. Fifth question is this. Do you not know how God sees you? Do you not know how God sees you? John Bunyan, I think it's in the Pilgrim's Progress, certainly in others of his writings, he would often speak of a mirror, a two-sided mirror, a two-sided mirror that gave off two images. And so as a man peered into one side of that mirror, the man saw his own image reflected. All the wrinkles, all the imperfections, pointing to what? All of his sins, all of his trespasses, all of his transgressions. As he peered into that mirror, he would see himself. But there was a second side to that mirror. And the second side to that mirror didn't reflect the image of the man. It reflected the image of Christ. How God sees us. He sees the life of Christ in us. His merit is my merit. His righteousness is my righteousness. His works are my works. My identity in Christ gives me a fundamentally new calling in life where I desire to live out all that I am in Christ by virtue of my union with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, seeking to grow in Christ-likeness. That's a preview of what's in store in chapters 6, 7, and 8, the theme of which is sanctification, the process by which God beautifies his people, the process by which God cleanses his people from their sin, the process by which God makes his people, shapes his people little by little into the likeness of Christ, all of it rooted in our unchangeable identity in him. Our Father, we praise you for these precious truths. We praise you for this portion of your word. And we, above all else, praise you for your son, the Lord Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. We thank you that we've been made one with him in your reckoning, in your account, in your sight. And that is indeed all our hope. It is the source and cause of our faith, the source and cause of our joy. May you help us to grow daily in our appreciation of who and what we are in Christ. And for the unbeliever present here this day, we pray that you would show him, her, all that they are lacking outside of Christ. Convince them of their sin. Convince them of the fact 
that Christ is indeed a Savior of sinners, that Christ is indeed one who calls to the weary and heavy laden, convince them of their need of Christ, and show them that in Christ there is abounding forgiveness to wash away each and every sin, each and every stain. We ask it for the glory of your name. In Christ's matchless and precious name we pray. Amen.